for the price of one. Welcome to the July-August 2018 Voices of Experience. Are you still working a corporate gig or gasp? Have you ever thought about going back on the inside? Let's talk to Sierra Madro, CSP, about the role of the corporate thought leader. So you had this fabulous inside gig. Tell us how it happened. I was a technology evangelist for Wacom Technology, which just real quick for those of you who may not know what that is, it's a technology company, it's a Japanese company that focuses on pen-based input. So for all of you who have ever used a pen on a Samsung device or Lenovo or Dell or Microsoft. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna blow your mind. How about a Wacom tablet on the Commodore 64? They, wow. go, they go that far back. You are going old school on that one. <laughs> you bet. Yes. Yeah. So I was a technology evangelist at Wacom, and that happened in large part. It, it was it happened on accident, basically. I was independent as a speaker, and I was going to LinkedIn to update my profile as one does on a very regular basis as a speaker. And it had this little box in the corner that said, jobs you may be interested in. And it said, technology evangelist for Wacom. Now, I have been a pen computing enthusiast, rabid enthusiast, since 2002. So this was something that I felt very deeply and passionately about. Read the job description, and I thought, oh, this sounds like me. But I don't want a job. I'm happily self-employed, but I thought I would explore it. And I applied, started the conversations, and realized this was exactly what I wanted to do for a while. And one of the things I think that we get caught up in as humans, not just as speakers, as humans, is this idea of permanence. Like, if I go and get a job, it's somehow changes who I am or my, my sense of value as a person. But I realized that this is something was a job that would help me hone my skills, honestly get paid really well, and allow me to launch my career again in another two or three years and be in a much stronger position. So when I went into it, I saw opportunity for myself and an opportunity to help the company. And it worked out brilliantly. I love that. Now, obviously, there are going to be some pros and cons to making that sort of lifestyle and work style change. Let's start with the advantages. What was awesome about it? Well, this will come as no surprise, but they gave me a paycheck every two weeks. There was like money deposited into my bank account. What were they thinking? I know. It was, it was absolute crazy talk. But I loved it. Uh, we we tend to laugh a bit about the benefits of an actual salary, but they are benefits. And that was something that was really helpful for me at that particular moment in my life and was something that was a big benefit for me. But the other thing that was a benefit was having an infrastructure and support system around me that corporate environment gave me a lot of support 
and gave me a lot of opportunities that I wouldn't have had as an individual. You know, when I was when I was working with Wacom, I was able to speak in Singapore, Hong Kong, Tel Aviv, Bulgaria, Germany, the UK, Japan. This was something that was a very international opportunity and I took full advantage of that. So that was a, a huge pro and gave me exposure to a number of other cultures, another, a number of other people, and those people are now a part of my network because I know them, they know me, and they think I'm awesome. So that's something that I get to take with me when, when I left was that those relationships and those people. So those were huge pros to work with. I love that. So there's the international exposure, there's the relationship building, there's the infrastructure, there's the regular cash flow of a beautiful yes. salary. Well, you know, they say that there are three really, the three most addictive things in the world are carbohydrates, sugar, and a paycheck. <laughs> and I yes. totally agree with all of those, having been a former insider myself. What were some drawbacks? Uh, that corporate support structure that was such a pro is also a con. I mean, that fits on both sides because if you've been accustomed to being self-employed, having to work within somebody else's rules and schedules can be a little bit chafing at the edges. So that that was something that I had to really work with and understand. I was also working with a very international group of people. And once again, pro and con, because as soon as you start trying to work with cross-cultural differences every single day and knowing that your success depends on your ability to communicate effectively with multiple cultures, that's something that's very pressuring um, and can become a con when you're the one that is always perceived to be the one at fault because you're the minority culture in this particular conversation. Right. So that can end up being a con. But really, I think the biggest con for me was schedule. Uh, I really like determining my own schedule. I joked the very first time that I went out on my own as a speaker, people would ask why I was doing it. And I, I said, because I want to sleep. <laughs> and I really like being able to determine when I go to sleep, when I wake up, and what I'm doing with the intervening hours. And going to a little cubicle and sitting there talking to people all day that was not on my top list of things that I wanted to be doing. So that ended up, over time, I realized I learned a lot, but now it was time to leave again. And that chapter fulfilled its purpose. It did. And then after you turned the page, new chapter, what were some of the takeaways from your time as that corporate thought leader? Oh, huge. I mean, I already mentioned the relationships that I built, and that's already getting me the potential opportunities. I'm talking to people in Israel and Macedonia about going to speak 
in that area, which would be very exciting. Macedonia would be a new country. I'm really excited about that. Maybe NSA, MSA. <laughs> Who knows? So that those relationships are something huge. But also, one of the things that I didn't realize was going to be, this kind of goes back to the benefits, I didn't know it was going to be a benefit for me when I went in, was I realized how much of an entrepreneurial mindset I had developed, and I was able to hone that while somebody else was giving me a paycheck, um, and hone that entrepreneurial mindset, hone my skills to be able to manage my own business more effectively, so, and frankly, save money, so that when I left again, I was positioned far stronger to launch successfully as an independent speaker than I had been before I went back into the corporate world. So it really gave me a huge launching platform to, to go from because it was a great experience, but I also learned so much about entrepreneurship and sometimes occasionally how not to do things. Uh, <laughs> that when I launched myself again, it's been far more successful the second time around. So if folks are listening and they're still working the day job, your advice to them would be? I don't jump because seriously, if you've got a day job and you don't hate it, there's nothing that says you have to leave if you want to be a speaker. You can be a speaker and be in a job. I've, I was a technology evangelist for Intel. I went back and was a technology evangelist again for Wacom. Both of those were very speaking heavy positions and I loved it and I got a paycheck. So that's a powerful combination. Uh, if you're in a position right now, then consider staying there. That's, that is a valid option. If you do decide you want to leave, then set yourself a timeline and start working towards an, an exit date that you have in your head. You don't have to tell anybody else what that exit date is, but work towards it in your head so that you have the website, the speaker reel, the marketing materials together so that when you do leave, you can launch yourself really effectively. And as someone who has also been down this journey of first being a speaker, then going back on the inside for a defined period of time and coming out on the other end, what would your advice be to that speaker who is at any point in their career um, struggling, not quite being able to figure things out, maybe they're looking for that next pivot, taking some of the drama out, like when you said you saw the LinkedIn ad, right. you said, but I don't want to get a job. <laughs> How, because you, it takes a lot of emotional maturity to yes. look at something like that and say, man, you know what? If I took my ego out of it, this would be perfect for me. So yes. if there's many paths up the mountain, and there are, what words of encouragement to wrap up would you say to the, the speaker who hasn't quite figured it out yet, or maybe they're having a, a mid-career slump? maybe the best thing they could do is go back on the inside for a short time. Yes, and uh, a, a good friend of mine, Donna St. Louis, asked me when I, I was talking to her about the Wacom job, and she asked me a question that was right on point. She said, if this were not, quote, a job, if they were ask, offering you an exclusive contract 
for three years at this salary per year, how would you feel about that exclusive contract? And I said, I would be thrilled. She said, there's your answer. And that's what I, how I approached the job at Wacom. I saw it as an exclusive contract, not, quote, a job. And that gave me the freedom and flexibility to approach my daily work, still having an entrepreneurial mindset, but doing, quote, the job. Hi, this is Michelle Villalobos. This is Patrick Donadio. This is Bill Cates. This is David Averin, and you are listening to Voices of Experience. Niche domination. domination. Allen Berg, CSP, welcome to VOE. Let's talk about your niche. Let's talk about how you just totally claimed, owned, and dominate your niche, how that came to be, and how we might be able to do something similar for a tribe that we would love to serve and we would love to have follow us. Sounds great. So, you are the, the guru of wedding marketing. Wedding business. Wedding business. Right. Wedding business. How'd you get into that? 27 years ago, my best friend bought a wedding magazine franchise. I was in a job I hated, and he said, I don't want a partner, I want a salesperson, I want you. So I thought about it. My wife was pregnant, had a three-year-old son, and it was a new industry, commission only, no salary, no draw, no minimum, no guarantee. So of course I went for it. And I sold for him for five years, and then I bought two wedding, I bought the two franchises, so I published two wedding magazines. And uh, that's how I got into the industry. So I started speaking uh, when I had the, my franchises. And my friend had brought in speaker to speak to our people. And he was really doing basically a, an infomercial for his stuff. Uh, this is 20 years ago. And I'm like, well, gosh, I could give that information and have them buy my stuff, which is the ads in the magazine. Because the thing about the wedding business is there's a very low bar to entry. If you want to be a wedding photographer, if you have a camera, you're qualified. Well, at least you have the equipment that you need. You want to be a DJ? Go to Guitar Center, go buy DJ equipment. So nothing qualifies you to be a business person just because you have a camera. The need was, I'm losing advertisers because they're not business people. So I started teaching them how to be better at business. Sold my franchises to the franchisor because they wanted me to come work for them. They got bought by the largest wedding website in the world. I was then working for them and they put me on stage immediately because the VP of sales didn't want to do the speeches. So I did that and for 11 years, this company called The Knot, like Tie The Knot, I was the main speaker. And then I was vice president of sales and vice president of sales operations, created the education, did webinars every month. In 2007, I was doing webinars every month already back then. So I was the speaker, and that's where my brand got defined, because I always tell people, what's their brand? Do they want someone, or do they want you? When people said, can they not send someone to speak, that wasn't a brand, that was their brand. When they said, can Alan come, that was my brand. So when I got downsized six years ago, or as I like to say, I untied the knot. Oh! <laughs> I already had a brand. And I just had to get rid of the comma. I was Alan Burke, comma, vice president at the knot. So I had to get rid of the comma and I created my own brand. Fortunately, I'd been an NSA member already at that point for four years. So I knew about the business of speaking. I now had to create my own speaking business. In 2013, we're Philly, right? 2013 yes. was Philly, at your hometown. Yeah. I went to the conference with the sole purpose, do I want to narrow my niche? Or do I want to go wide and deep? I already had a book on websites called If Your Website Was an Employee, Would You Fire It? And it wasn't, is your wedding website an employee? It's a website book. 
I have had a book called Your Attitude for Success, not Your Attitude for Successful Wedding Business. So these are books that would apply to anybody, but do I want to do that? And I said, well, I'm just another sales speaker. I mean, there's no shortage of us here at NSA. I'm just another website speaker. There's no shortage of us at, at NSA. But I'm the only guy that really knows this industry and can talk about those things. So I said, I'm going to go narrow and deep. I didn't know what deep meant. I mean, that's when we talk about our niche. We, we, you know, how deep is our niche? Warren Buffett talks about how deep is your moat, right? You want to protect yourself with a big moat if you have a castle. How deep is my niche? Well, gosh, I've spoken all over the country. I've spoken in Canada, and then I spoke in Mexico. I was like, well, this is pretty cool. Well, as of now, I've spoken in 11 countries in two languages about the business of weddings. And the beautiful thing is I don't speak about weddings. That's a big, big misnomer. People say, oh, so you speak about weddings. I said, no. I speak to people who do them about business. So if you're a photographer in Mumbai, I've been there twice, what do you need to do? Attract an audience, get them to find your website, marketing, whatever, make an inquiry, get an appointment with them somehow, digitally, in person, make the sale. Then you take the pictures. That's the same in Uruguay. That's the same in Ireland. That's the same in Colorado. So I get to speak about that, the business of weddings, because I understand their needs, I understand those things. And here's a beautiful thing in my niche, it's a recession-resistant business. People get married no matter what. When the economy's down, you don't hear, oh gosh, weddings are down. They might spend differently, might spend a little less, but weddings are not down. So I'm in a business that people like to get into because low barrier to entry, recession-resistant business. And then they find out, I'm in a business. What the heck? I have to do business? You mean I have to make sales? I have to do marketing? I have to, I have to do advertising? I have to do email marketing? I have to have a, a website? I don't know how to do that stuff. Right, because you're a florist. <laughs> you're not supposed to know how to do that stuff. Oh, by the way, you're a speaker. You're not supposed to know how to do that stuff. That's what we come to NSA. So I chose this to go narrow and deep. And after I did, not before, after I did, deep became the abyss that I can't see the bottom. I can't, I, I don't know where the bottom is because then somebody contacts me, like I got the other day, hey, there's this thing in San Salvador in September, maybe you can come and speak at, well, gosh, I haven't spoken in El Salvador yet, well, that's cool. Last year it was Uruguay and Panama and, uh, you know, I don't know where the bottom is. So the niche kind of chose me because 27 years ago I fell into the wedding industry. But then what are you good at? What are you... What do people get from you? That's what we talk about a lot in NSA. The people that I help very well are these people in the wedding industry because I understand their business, I understand business, and I'm able to relate it to what they do. So when, you're, when I'm speaking to new speakers or speakers who are trying to think, should I niche or not niche my market, I said, well, who benefits a lot from what you do? Who tells you, wow, you've really helped me and how have they helped you? Because you can't be, well, I'm sorry, you can try to be everything to everyone, but it's not gonna work. Uh, there's no shortage of people that if you say, gee, what do you speak on? They say leadership. So I always say to them, to whom? Right, speak on leadership, great, speak on leadership. Anyone, Alan, anyone, anyone. E everyone needs leadership. Exactly, but if, you're, if you are general and the insurance industry association, whatever, the uh, uh, nursing home owners association wants a speaker on leadership, and you are a leadership speaker, you might get that gig. But if you're a leadership speaker on the healthcare industry or specifically to the geriatric part of the healthcare industry, all of a sudden you're much more attractive to them than someone who just speaks on leadership.
So you can have more than one of those niches. I have multiple niches within my niche, the wedding industry. It's only $70 billion in the United States, so it's just, just getting started, right? $70 billion, but it's broken up into different categories. Almost half of that money is spent on the venue and food. My two biggest groups of, of advertisers, I also do advertisers, uh, consulting clients, because uh, my biggest client is the biggest competitor to my former employer, so Wedding Wire. So I talk about advertisers because that's their clients. My two biggest categories are the caterers and venues, which makes up almost half of the money that's spent on weddings, and then the disc jockey industry. And I kind of just fell into that. I understand them real well. We connected real well with them. I did a mastermind in the UK last year, 10 DJs, 11 of us sitting around a boardroom table. At the end of the day, one of them said, hey, uh, we're walking out. He goes, hey, Alan, how long were you a DJ? I said, I've never been a DJ. He said, what do you mean? I, I said, I've never been a DJ. He said, but you understand my business better than I do. I said, yes, I do, but I've never been a DJ. Because I can get all the way to the point where you have to do the DJing. And then you have to know that skill, because it's a different skill. So I do know your business better because I've worked with more DJs than you'll ever work with. I've seen the insides and under the hood of their businesses more than you ever will. But I don't have to be a DJ to do that. So if you want to speak to the nursing home industry, I'll just go back to that one. Are your speaking topics written to the nursing home industry or are they written to leadership? I'm a leadership speaker and I can help leaders be better leaders because they're better leaders because when they're better leaders, they want to be better leaders. And they also lead better. Usually, yeah, usually they do. So I've heard, so I've heard. So when I'm speaking to my audience, uh, I actually had something interesting probably about 10 years ago. Somebody said, you know, I want you to come and just, it's the florist group, you know, only talk about florists. I had to speak to three different groups within the course of about two months, specific categories, because sometimes I'll speak to a group of mixed wedding professionals. But this was a floral convention, and then there was a DJ convention, and then there was a photographer convention. I gave the same speech at all three, but I changed the title, and I changed all the references within it to their industry. The florist said, thank you for just giving us something about florists. And the DJ said, thank you for just giving us something about DJs, photographers. And when I tell a story to the florals, I don't talk about the DJs. I talk about florists and I tell them a floral story and how someone overcame a challenge or whatever. So that's, I'm not gonna say that's all you need to do to be in a niche, but when you speak their language and use their words, people relate to you better. Mary Foley, we're talking about Kick your boring presentations to the curb. So are there boring presentations? Do our colleagues give boring presentations? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, actually, no. So the segment's over. Let's just move on. You want a glass okay. of wine? I'm no, just kidding. I'm uh, good. Well, you'd think that we all really know this, that we can't be boring and we shouldn't be boring, um, and that we get it. But um, I truly think there's still a lot of lackluster speakers. They've got good content. They've got good intentions. They're good people, but they fall flat in today's entertainment standards uh, and audiences' expectations. And so, yes, I still think there's way too many boring presentations that are out there. And they're not all necessarily done by, you know, our colleagues here in NSA. I'm not saying that. But we have to also know and, and we have to continue to remember there's a lot of people doing presentations, whether they're good at them or not. And so it's not hard to be better. <laughs> but in another way, we want to get paid well, we need to up the game. Absolutely. And I want to draw a distinction here because what you're saying, it sounds like it's not just, oh, 
you are doing a uh, one-way data dump. You've got a PowerPoint. You are turning your back to the audience. You're reading the PowerPoint. So that's just a poor presentation, period. What right. I'm hearing you say is, even if you do that old-school presentation perfectly, masterfully, it's a 45-minute talk. Your PowerPoints are beautiful. You're engaged in making eye contact with the audience. You're delivering it like clockwork, like you did in 1992. That's not going to cut it, even if that was an A-plus presentation in 1992 or even if it's an A-plus presentation today, but you're delivering it like you would have or did in 1992 or 2002 or 2007 or you pick your year. But we've moved way beyond mm -hmm. the sage from the stage, the talking head with the PowerPoint. Yeah, that would be today a masterful presentation like that. I think by most people considered boring and not considered the price of admission, If even if the price of admission is their time. And I don't think that is only limited to, you know, millennials or, or Gen Ys. I, I think it is all of us who are business people because time commodity is is huge so absolutely you know there's an adage in our business is uh you know you only need to be funny you know if you want to get paid right, right. i'd say yeah well and and if you're funny you're not boring so if you macro that it's you only need to be not boring if you want to get paid you've got to be interesting you've got to be provocative you've got to be not boring um you know that's why you can have humor but if you're really not as comfortable with humor or you that's not your style or your personality don't use too much humor don't force fit it you, but just say the bar is i can't be boring and so we're talking about changing up the format, changing up the content, changing up some of the audience engagement strategies. Yeah. So let's talk about what are some speed bumps that speakers mm -hmm. will run into when we're switching up our presentations mm -hmm. to reboot, re-energize, reinvent them for this new way of engaging an audience? Well, I think the first thing is it's easier and harder than you think. Okay, so it's easier to not be boring if you focus on how to get the audience involved in a lot of, in a myriad of ways, and you basically let them do a huge part of the work. I mean, let them create content, let them create value through the interaction, you know, so it's, e it's not like you have to come up with every single programmed moment, okay? So that's the easier part, I think, of this. The harder part for a lot of people who've particularly done this for a long time uh, or a while uh, is that I gotta let go. I gotta let go of control and perhaps of quote the audience. I gotta let control of my, I can maybe gotta let go of my methods and uh, my models. I might have to let go of that or I might have to modify that. So I kinda have to, you know, reinvent used to be the big term and stuff. I don't know if you have to totally change you know everything and totally reinvent but you the harder part for some people is to let go of of that so um but you know what's if you don't you know if you don't become not boring <laughs> you know um then you put a bigger thing at risk so let me give you some other speed bumps or some things to people to consider. Uh, you know, in the past, you and I have talked about the impact of TED Talks and the impact of social media on creating experiences and uh, and therefore not boring events. And what we said about I said about TED Talks was is that this thing about shorter, 
you know, it started this whole trend, it's not gonna go away, and it's got shorter, shorter, shorter. Well, guess what? I think there'll be increased expectations to do more in less time. And that's, you know. <laughs> Is that both macro and micro? So for example, a three-day event will go down to a two-day event. Mm -hmm. A one-hour keynote will become a 25-minute keynote. Are, are we shortening the overall time that people are on site at an event yeah, or absolutely. at a conference? Yeah, I think. And then we're also shortening the format so that we can pack more into less time. Yeah, so ex for example, it still may be a one-day event. All right, so the overall event may not change, but your slot, so to speak, to your time slot, may be less, and it may be, uh, hey, listen, we've got an hour, all right, or we're giving you an hour, um, but they don't want the 45 to 60 minute keynote kind of standard thing. What they want is, first of all, they expect more content packed in. They, ex they just expect a whole lot more in less time that you're going to give us more information content in less time but also in and in the interaction piece is going to happen so i just think it's going to be you're going to be expected to deliver more and expected to deliver it a bit differently so that's the, the impact of social media the impact of social media is i i now expect to go to events live events because i do this virtually all right in other words in virtually in social media i can interact anytime I want and I can do it, so I do it easily and often, right? And it's easy to do. When I go to a live event, I wanna do the same thing, okay? So that doesn't mean you're doing it always via social media. You might be doing it and turning to the person next to you and having a conversation. You might be doing it by a game that's come up with. It takes, you know, three minutes by, you know, the speaker or the trainer or the facilitator. But it does mean that I wanna interact. Um, also keep in mind this, I think the up game of that is more experiential interacting is gonna be, ha or, um, interaction is gonna be happening and watch out for virtual reality technology. You know, that actually we're being threatened, so to speak, as speakers and trainers in particular, uh, to be replaced by uh, virtual education. VED in some places that it's called. So that instead of us showing up, it's just this big headpiece. It probably won't be big at some point, but you know, and it now, and it might be run by robots. And I, and now that sounds extreme. And some of us maybe go, I'm retiring way before that happens. But that's the trajectory of, of how technology. So we may be on the other end in a photo booth or in a video booth doing it, but that's how they're experiencing it. I'm simply saying that this thing of, interaction and experiential interaction at, is is the thing that if we don't start figuring out how to create it in micro bursts, so to speak, in live events now, we're really going to be um, dinosaurs very shortly. We're gonna be uh, not being asked back as much. So I think that's what we have to consider. Yeah, wow. So let's talk about some specific examples before we get to the robots, before we get to the yeah, VED, before we get to the, that's a ways the, off, but the, still. the holographic Mary Foley. <laughs> I Am I talking to the real Mary Foley now, or is this, are you actually a hologram and a robot right now? Well, I just, I can't really reveal that at the moment. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. It doesn't change your experience, so that's It the doesn't. There you go. It doesn't. In fact, this uh -huh. might be better. So, you know, right. Mary Foley might be out right. drinking wine. You're here talking to me. This is great. Mary Foley's at another gig. I'm getting double you're getting right. <laughs> right, right here's you're, what's happening. You're, you're getting paid somewhere else. You're here talking to me now. Exactly. I'm liking this. I have less and less think of myself as a speaker or a presenter or a trainer. And I think of myself as I'm there leading a large group conversation. And conversations have 
things like content, someone saying something maybe, you know, of, of, a, of a data point or saying a factoid or, or bringing up a, you know, a, a, a simple but powerful point backed up in, in, and they explain it, that's content. Content can also be um, uh, interaction. But I want, I want to be thinking of how do I get, how do I get some stuff out there that people are going to now start to interact with, process on, talk to, talk about, and, and uh, play games with, you know, literally play games with, uh, with, with one another and, and kind of uh, work, on, work on these ideas or with these ideas. So I think of it as a large group conversation. That all of a sudden changes my mindset from a performer to um, an orchestra leader, so to speak. Okay? Impresario. There you go, impresario. Conductor. And then I think about three big questions. Okay, how do I get their attention? Because if I don't get their attention at first, forget it. You know, I've, I've lost it. So I've got to do something interesting and something, you know, that's probably where my most performance comes out is how do I get their attention right off? How do Is that something provocative, shocking, surprising, all unexpected, those things can funny? Be, mm-hmm. um, I think any one of those on the list. And this is where you can't have a formula. Right. But it can't be like, oh, I'm so glad you're here today. Thank you so much. for Forget all of that. People don't care dive right in and and get to something the more provocative or interesting or curious what you're really trying to do is raise their huh oh something's going on I'm looking up for my phone but their curiosity you want to get a question mark in their head and they're going I got another answer to that uh, what I wonder what the answer to that is I mean you that's what you got to peek and you got to do it in the first three four minutes yeah and then you want to frame out from that now you've got attention you want to frame out here's the topic yeah, I don't care if they've got an agenda, they, or they've looked on their phone or in the print. Forget it. You've got to frame this thing out more, and, and you got to restate it. And then you got to ask yourself before you go in, okay, given this topic, what are the most important points? And guess what? It can't be a long list. Three, four, five max. Or, and if it's not the points you're giving, what are the most important topics or, or subpoints that you've been talking to the meeting planner, you've been talking to the organization that they that you that's going to most be, serve that organization and serve the group oh that my I got to get them to talk about. So this is literally less is more, right? It We're is not less here is more. to kind of truck out all the information. We're here to boil down the essential information. Yeah, and in fact, it's better to have fewer points and in information and more not only time, but more ways I interact on those points. And more conversation, application, right. implementation. Exactly. I might do, instead of just one thing for each point, like one interaction or one exercise, I might do like two or three, you know? Because part of it is uh, what different ways people learn. Part of it is different lines of processing. Sometimes it's like, oh, now I understand what he or she's talking about. Then it's like, oh, I now I understand how this applies to me. Right. So, 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 you know, the last point is about that. How will I orchestrate or be an impresario? Is that how you say mm-hmm. it? I got it right. Yeah. Okay. Learning or on this conversation, how do I, how do I orchestrate so it's inter- interesting, but it's also interactive? So, those are the three main things I put myself through, and the methods, the techniques to do that. This is why NSA is is a great resource. Is that there are people here, always sharing. Well, here's the way I did it, and here's how. Here's an interactive piece. I did, and and of course, there's new technologies like online polling is right now. Where, but there'll be other ones that how can I get people to interact? The, the warning I give about technology is this: great stuff, but don't get lost in the whiz bang. Say what 
will this help me do? What am I trying? Will it help this audience or this group understand this better? Will it help them, you know, react more? Will it help? That's what that, what's what, it's a tool, it's a tool, it's a tool. We get like, we got to be all flashy. Maybe not. It'd be better to be more valuable. So, it, you know, technology is great, but it's all, all about, I think, all about the value. So what it really it helps you accomplish. We're back with Bill Cates, founder of the Million Dollar Speakers Group. So, Bill, you started this thing a handful of years back. You led the group for a couple of years. Tell us where it came from. Tell us what's special about Million Dollar Speakers. Yeah, so I want to correct the record real quick. I didn't start it. I was one of the founding members. I remember the very first meeting we had uh, at a, a number of years ago. I know Jeffrey Gittimer was there. Randy Gage was there. Mark Sanborn were there. There were a lot of uh, Dan Burris, I believe, was there. Uh, so, you know, a lot of known, well-known, successful folks were there. And it, it's evolved over time but what we do know is that people who have businesses are doing a million or more and it's I guess one could say it's an arbitrary number um, there are different issues uh, and things that someone who's doing 200,000 or 400 or even five or six hundred thousand maybe doesn't have yet or their issues are a little bit different so obviously it's important to be with people who can help you solve your issues who have had that problem they've solved it let's learn from them so that's kind of the the basis behind that and there's two basic members in the million dollar speakers group they're the what we'll call the uh, personality-driven type of uh, businesses, Randy Gage, Waldo Waldman, Sally Hogshead. These are the personality-driven types of uh, businesses like myself. Uh, and then you have enterprise businesses. These are quite often members of NSA that nobody knows about, Amy Tolbert, uh, and, and all kinds of other folks that have these incredible you know, uh, uh, multi-million dollar businesses but it's not driven by the personality of the speaker. They're not the figurehead. And even they have different issues than the personality-driven uh, speaker. Yeah, very interesting. Now, it sounds like the business models here, we're not just talking about people who get on a plane, go stand on a stage, get paid, and come home. As you mentioned, the enterprise type of speaking-driven business or just mm -hmm. the, the personality-driven speaker, there's a lot more than speaking services on their menu, isn't there? Yeah, some of them don't even speak anymore, like Jeb Brooks with the Brooks Group. He doesn't speak. He's got all these contract trainers, uh, either employees or trainers that go out and do this. Marjorie Brody, uh, she speaks some. Her daughter does a lot of running the other, the rest of the business. So some of these folks speak, some don't speak at all. They've really built a very robust business. And they didn't necessarily start out that way, but it just started happening and they went with it. Yeah, no, absolutely. So let's start with the makeup of the group. How many members are in there? Give us a quick rundown of their different business models and, and sort of why should the average NSA member care? Yeah, so here's why I believe the average NSA member should care. Uh, first of all, if you aspire, to build a business like that. And I know not everyone does aspire, and there's no judgment on my part, that's for sure. Look, we all have different things we want to do with our life and our business, and, and God bless us all, right? So I'm not saying that someone doesn't do a million dollars, they're less than. It's just, it's just a decision of how to go in a certain direction. Uh, for those who do want to go there, then certainly uh, it's aspirational. And uh, some people do have the goal 
to make it to that group because they want to generate that kind of revenue and impact the number of people they do. But I also think there's a trickle-down effect. I think that as we do more programming for folks like that and we bring more of those, those members into NSA, then now we have an NSA membership of people who have been very successful and because of the spirit of NSA, the spirit of Cabot, they're going to be sharing what they do with other people. So, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats is the expression. Uh, I think it's important that we find ways to bring programming to all levels of our membership. and. Um, so I, I, th I think it's important for members to know that it's possible to build a million dollar business. And even if you never get there, if you'd start doing some of the practices and some of the things that those folks are doing, you will certainly move forward in your business. Absolutely right. I love that. Now, what sort of things does the group do? I know we have a get-together at the uh, Influence Convention, but what happens in between? You guys have regular meetings, retreats, mm -hmm. summits. Do you go on trips together? What, what happens? Yeah, and, and the group is evolving as, as we figure it out how to serve each other better. Yes, we have a full-day session on the Saturday before NSA. Uh, usually 50, 60 members are there, uh, high-level speakers, high-level masterminding that goes on. Uh, we do a, a, a less formal thing at the winter conference. Uh, usually the day of the conference, we get together and do some more masterminding and just share what's working and share our challenges. Uh, we've also had a series of webinars in between. And I'll tell you the biggest thing, David, and this is true for anybody in NSA at any level, is the relationships that we form, right? So we, we have a seed of a conversation in a meeting, and then we make a note to make sure we reach out with others later. So uh, people I meet at the Million Dollar Speakers Group and in the halls of NSA, I'll have a little conversation, and then my follow-up is always you know, afterwards, and, and let's do this in a way we can have a nice focused conversation, not try to do it with all our friends walking by waving at us. So yeah, so we have the in-between, and we're looking at other ways to, to, uh, to make it even more robust in how we can help each other. And Bill, for those members who do aspire to get to that million dollar mark or more, what pieces of advice might you have for them? How can they start to put some strategies in place where maybe next year they'll be at the table with you? Maybe in two years they'll be at the table with you? Sure. So uh, there are a few exceptions, but the majority of members of the Million Dollar Speakers uh, group have a process that they teach. They have they take their clients from point A to point B. Now we do have a few members that are more in the pure motivational side, which means they're doing a lot of gigs at a really good fee, and God bless them as well. And uh, most of the members uh, have created a transferable process. So, and that's, that leads into the online learning, it leads into coaching models, it leads into all kinds of ways to bring value when you're not just inspiring and telling people what to do, but you actually have a mechanism to show them how to do it. So that's one of the first things I'd offer is to make sure you, you, do, you have that process that, that moves people from point A to point B. The second thing is to start to uh, identify the members of the Million Dollar Speakers Group and find out who they are. You may know some of them and start to just, you know, we're, we're willing to help. I have referred many people to other members of the group, say, hey, could you take her call? Could you take his call? You know, and, and we, we're gladly willing to help other people who aspire to do or do even just a piece of what we're doing.
So, like, we're, we're allowed to talk to you guys? <laughs> yeah, in fact, I prefer that you do, that you don't ignore us. Uh, there, believe me, there is not an arrogance about this. This is really just uh, at, like everybody. We want to keep learning from people who are better than us, and right? So there's people in the Million Dollar Speakers group that are out of the group learning from other people who are even doing better. So it's just, it's just a natural uh, way that, that people work together. I love it. So we're not only making the pie bigger, we're now making the million dollar pie bigger. We're making everybody's pie bigger. Swindling! Newman! Newman! So, Linda Swindling, welcome to Voices of Experience. Thank you, David Newman. And we have this pet thing where, like, just on social media, you know, you scream my last name, I scream your last name. So we had to pay tribute to that. Absolutely. Let's talk about Ask Outrageously, which is a concept and a theme. And you've got a fabulous book out there whose subtitle is The Secret to Getting What You Really Want. So Ask Outrageously. I know in my own career, I have not asked smart enough. I have not asked big enough. I have not asked often enough for help, for advice, for guidance, for lots of things, for favors. Uh, what was the whole premise of this book? How, how did you come to write this fabulous book and walk us through sort of the tips and traps of why we don't ask outrageously enough? Well, Dave Lieber, who we both know, um, had done a TEDx seminar. And Zan Jones, who works with me, who markets me, said, we really need to do a TEDx. And I said, we really need to? And she said, yeah. And so she said, you know, what is it that you haven't done a lot of um, speaking on out in the public that your clients tell you they really get a lot out of? I said, well, you know, this ask outrageously. I make them do this asking challenge and they have to go ask three times. And when they hear no three times, they can stop. But they have to ask three times for something outrageous and see what they get. And she said, well, I think that's your topic. So we, we proposed it to TEDx, got turned down the first time, which is good to know. But the second time they said, would you audition and, and do this topic? And that's, it was asked, the world needs you to ask outrageously. So you didn't tell them, could you please reject me a second time so that I could get my three in? No, I, I sometimes, and, and I think that's one of the big things that speakers don't remember, you know, is we've got to put it out there. And then sometimes people have to think about us, even for years. And this was an example. And she she contacted the the coordinator contacted me at SMU, the TEDx SMU coordinator Heather said, "Hey, you know, would you be willing to do this this topic?" And I said, "Well, it's last year's theme." And she said, "That's fine." And so we auditioned, or I, I auditioned, and you know, forced me to, to go do it. And yeah, after eight people speaking very important professors and you know I'm the great granddaughter of a slave and somebody else that was a, a dumpster diver you know a CEO who dived and dumped believe it or not the people registered related to a little story about that I tell about my daughter who asked outrageously and for her it was oh gosh huge outrageous ask for us it was yeah, it's no big deal but that's it you know asking outside your comfort zone so let's talk about some of the strategies. I think I think the subtitle of your book really has probably strategy number one, which is it's the secret to getting what you really want. We need to figure out exactly what we really want instead of these general wishy-washy, I want to be a better speaker, I want to get on bigger stages, I want to make more money. Talk about how we 
identify what we really want. So what you have to do, or at least most speakers like me have to do, is you got to uninstall that like me button. We want everybody to like us. And so, you know, the big story that I told when I really did the talk was I went to The Tonight Show with a lot of our speaker buddies. And Jay Leno comes out and he, he asked the audience, you know, what, does anybody have a question? And I did. But I asked him the like me question first and didn't get to what I really wanted. And what I really wanted with him was a picture. I wanted to run down there, but instead I, I did the, oh, you know, what's the hardest part of your job, you know? And he answered, but oh goodness, that's not what I really wanted. And before I could ask for what I really, really wanted, he moved on to someone else who asked for what I wanted. And so what you have to do is you have to ask for what you want first and just throw it out there, be a little vulnerable, ask outside your comfort zone, because a lot of times there's only one thing. And as speakers, we have to go ahead and tell them what we want. You don't have time to build the like me. They're already talking to you. They like you enough. And you ask and be just a little bit vulnerable, and you'll be surprised how many people kind of think about it, say, let me call you back. And if you can keep your mouth shut, you know, you can bite on your knuckle if you have to, you'll be surprised how many people will think about it and come back to you. So let's, and do we have a, a, a tagline for that strategy? Sure. It's, well, it's the asking strategy. You know, it's ask first, but the big one is focus your ask. Really focus on what you want, what do you really want, why, what are the good business reasons around it, and then how am I going to go about getting it? And then the other is, so what's in it for them, right? We are always listening to what's in it for us, what's in it for us, what's in it for me? Well, no, turn the dial, turn the, turn the nozzle, nozzle over to, Turn the knob over to what's in it for them. So let, let's just put the sound bite out there, which is what you just said. Focus your ask. And that's got a K on that, it? Definitely a K. You Big know, hard K. Ask. A hard K. Ask. Hard K. Yeah. Um, got it. Smart ask or smart asks. I thought that was really clever when I wrote it. Yeah. When I read it in the audiobook multiple times, not not always the brightest decision. So also think when you're asking and writing, think about what, what words am I using? So how, how, how can I be a smart ask? One of the things you can do is write it down. I mean, we get so busy. Write down what you're interested in. And you know, write down two options. Write down, here's option number one, here's option number two that I want. And then ask the client. Now here's something else that very few negotiators do very few speakers do ask the the client you know what else should i be asking for what else have you done with other people what have other speakers asked for what's worked well what hasn't worked they know they've hired speakers for their organizations over and over again and never never fall into that trap where the decision maker says well, I don't know, just send me some options or some proposals or something to say. Instead say, you know, I can do all of that. But before I get started, what would this look like? What would this feel like? You know, how would you know this was a real win? What would people walk away doing and how would you see it? What would be the evidence? Pin them down. And then when they say, they give you the story, say, well, how would you see me doing that with your group? Let's say you're doing a, a huge um, program and you're gonna go out six, seven times. How would that look? 
they will tell you, I see you coming to my office. I see you going to this conference center seven times. Oh, and you would have limited yourself to maybe once. Let's also talk about not only asking for ourselves, but asking for others, that triangulation strategy, where maybe this takes the form of a referral, maybe this takes the form of teeing up your favorite client, your favorite vendor, some software or service that you use, you're recommending that to a speaker buddy. It has lots of applications. What are some strategies for asking for others? And is asking, having others ask on our behalf, is that more powerful sometimes than us asking for ourselves? David, you've really hit on something that I'm gonna even take a little bit step a step further on that. In your mind, even when you're asking for yourself, think about who else it can benefit. If I ask for my full fee, if I ask for books, who else is going to benefit? Well, of course the attendees but your family benefits. Maybe your friends benefit. Maybe you've set a precedent that the client now sees that you're at a different level and they start benefiting by sending you to where you really need to be, a bigger audience. So you also think about not just who else can it benefit. You know, honestly, when you're asking for, for someone else, two thirds of us feel more comfortable to do that. We did a, a survey of more than 1,000 people, almost 1,200 people. And the, the big learning there was two-thirds of us would much rather ask for someone else than ask for ourselves. So it's almost a trick. You almost have to say, okay, who else is this going to hit? Who else can this help? So let's talk about asking. So we've done a home run job, right? Home run, knocked it out of the park, clients thrilled, audiences thrilled, meeting planners thrilled, CEO is thrilled. We sometimes tread very carefully and very timidly about asking for things like testimonial, referral, have me back next year. Now, they just indicated clearly and explicitly that they love you, they want you, they got tremendous value. Whether this is taking out our cell phone and taking a testimonial video, whether this is asking for, hey, what else can we do next year? How else can we extend this learning? How else can we extend the impact of the program that we just did? How about coaching? How about books? How about my online program? How about whatever? Let's talk about when you have a door open like that. Why are we hesitant to make the ask? What's, what are some of the blocks? First off, we're so thrilled that it went well sometimes. We're grateful that it went well, and we don't want to look greedy. And that's crazy. Somebody is saying, you just knocked it out of the park. You helped our people. We've never had a speaker like you. The next question needs to be, what's next? What do we need to do to make sure that what we're feeling right now continues? What do you want them to continue to do? Because think about it. Think about all the speakers we see at a convention or all the speakers that our chapter may bring in. We can't possibly get it and drill it down in those few hours that we have and get all those concepts. And so constantly be saying, what is it that they're trying to achieve? And then in your mind, you can figure out the how. You've got the coaching, you've got the whatever. But again, you don't have to think through everything. Say, well, how would that look? Well, I wish our top leaders were talking to you once a week. Oh, how would that look? Well, gosh, I wish we had something that you would write for us. Well, how would that look? And then if they can't think of anything, say, you know, I've got 
a lot of ideas and clients have had me do a lot of things. I've done, I've written books. Would that be of use? I have a newsletter. Would that be helpful? I have coaching. What else would be helpful to help you get these goals set? The what and the how questions are probably some of the most overlooked questions that we've got in our arsenal. What and how, open-ended questions. What are you looking for? Use those what and how. If you can do that, you'll be amazed at what happens. This is Ravi Tanger. This is Robert Stack. This is Victoria Griggs. You're listening to Voices of Experience. Brad Montgomery, CSP, CPAE. You have been around the block, my friend. You've seen the good, the bad, the ugly. In other words, you've seen my website. <laughs> but so you don't to, need me. Let's go. Let's yeah, exactly. This is terrible. Talk to us about the things that you wish you would have known when you were starting out about this crazy upside down business that we're in. It's kind of set the stage. What? First of all, tell us how you started, and then maybe some of the missteps, and then let's we'll swing into some of the. Gosh, now I know this. I wish I'd known it back then. I was doing pretty well in many ways. I look back and I'm like, okay, it's a tough gig, and you were doing it, and you were supporting yourself in an industry where that's not easy to do. And but uh, with with hindsight, I would go back and realize, wow, it would have been much easier to run my business if I invested a little bit more time in my stage presentation. And it was very hard for me to, to see that then because of ego. So get better sooner. Yeah, which sounds so easy. And I know that if I would have heard you say that 10 years ago or 20 years ago or even three years ago, or honestly, even today, I'd say like, oh yeah, totally. And I'd nod my head and I'd agree with you, right, David? And I would not think you're talking about me because I'd say, yeah, a lot of speakers suck. They should really improve. But I am rocking it. But that's wrong. And now I'm kind of a grown-up and realizing, oh, the good people are really working hard. And I wasn't. I was getting – I had some natural ability and a lot of stage time. So it was – It was. there were some nice things happening. But I never just sat down and went, oh, how do we craft this bad boy? Man, so this is this is really juicy stuff because I think as speakers we have we have a little bit of ego going on sometimes. And <laughs> I'm sorry, I just said how because I've I've run into speakers this is like the American Idol syndrome, right? Oh, I've called it the that too. The person who is just horrible says, I am so talented, I am so gifted, I know I'm going to Hollywood, this is a shoe in for me. And they get up there and they're just god awful. How do we get more of a reality check on how good we are and what we need to work on next to get better. What insights can you share? First, let's talk about that American Idol thing. It's a little bit great because we would never walk out on stage if we had an honest you know, appreciation of what, where we were. So right now I'm 51, if I look at what I was doing at 24 and you asked me to do that right now, I'd be horrified. I, I, I don't know if I could do it. But at 24, I kind of thought I was pretty awesome. So, so I thank heavens we have a little bit of protective ego. So that's normal. And in our job, let's face it, you cannot walk onto a stage unless you think you have something to offer, which means ego. So, yeah, ego's a problem. But, but it, it's, I think it's relevant to think it's protective and helpful. But, it, man, it's a problem. That, that, let's go back to that. And what I came up with most recently is the cringe factor. And here's where you know if we're talking to you. So if you, if you have any trouble imagining giving a, um, an uncut, unedited, one-hour keynote tape 
to one of your pals to look at because you cringe because you think, ah, I don't want them to see that. Ah. If you have trouble yourself looking at a one hour unedited tape of yourself because you're cringing or it's just too hard to watch yourself, we're probably talking to you. If you think to yourself, um, imagine this, David, somebody walks up to you and says, I'm taking the last keynote you did and I'm putting it on Netflix. That's your one hour special. I'm putting it up and you cringe because you're like, but it's not ready. It's, uh, well, then we're probably talking to you. And I could not have heard that. I, 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 I Again, I just keep putting myself in the space of uh, the, your listeners. You know, anyone says that you should improve, I'd nod my head. Yeah, yeah, you should. And I wouldn't have thought you're talking about me. And now as an older version of myself, I'm like, no, yes, yeah, you, it's you. We're talking about you. Unless you feel like you're, you can take your keynote and put it on Netflix to show your mom, your pal, your high school friends, your peers. And, and by the way, I, I'm not able to pass that test myself. Then you probably ought to get better, which means coaching, which means thought, uh, thoughtfully, strategically wondering if you're, you're, are you doing the right keynote? Does that story really belong? Probably you're going to need some help, but probably you're also going to have to be more thoughtful than you have been in the past. That, yeah. And that's me talking to me. So let's talk about this about getting getting some help because I when people I you know NSA hallway conversation uh, when people ask me what do you wish you had done differently etc I said man first six seven years of my business I had no mentors I had no role models I didn't really listen to anybody because I was an idiot I was an idiot and I didn't and it's not about paying for help I, that didn't even occur to me I was offered free help I was offered hey if you ever want to talk about hey if you what are you working on how can I help whenever someone asked me genuinely how can I help you my business was floundering I was broke I was stupid I said no no I'm good I'm good no, yeah. I'm fine don't need any help thanks for asking man you're awesome you're great I wouldn't even take the free help not only not having mentors in the business, not having mentors as an entrepreneur, as soon as I started, number one, accepting the help, having a better answer for, hey, Brad, how can I help you? What are you working on? What do you need? What can I, who can I introduce you to? As soon as I started being vulnerable and willing to say, well, you know, here's what I'm working on. I'd love your advice. Here's what I'm working on. I'd love to get more into this industry or that group. What are your thoughts? As soon as I started doing that, and then as soon as I started investing in my own coaching and mentoring, so there's free help, there's low-cost help, there's medium-cost help, there's super expensive help, there's help within NSA, there's help outside of NSA. This is one of my big stumbling blocks is I did not have mentorship or I did not hire help or accept help soon enough. Did this play into your world at all? I think it plays in all of our worlds. It is hard, it just, as a human, it's hard to ask for help. We are not trained for that. Just walk yourself through the last time you needed help and were you able to reach out and say, help, please save me. So it's totally normal. And then you combine that with the ego hit of saying, Are, what, you're gonna look at my material? It's so completely scary. I don't even wanna look at my own video. I can't imagine letting you look at my, my screw ups here and the time I lost the audience there and the unfinished story there. So yeah, it's ridiculous. But um, hello, wake up. You gotta do it. This is, unless you're gonna be mediocre for the rest of your career, which is not a good marketing strategy, 
Mediocrity does not lead to awesomeness in business. Although it is my new book, Mediocrity Marketing. <laughs> yeah. Look for it. Oh, yeah. Just do mediocrity. Uh, you know, unless you want to kind of flounder along. Or in my case, I, I, the reason I couldn't have listened to this advice when I was younger is I didn't suck. I was, there was some evidence that I was doing well. My audiences were kind to me. People booked me. So I wasn't horrible. But I, I wasn't really amazing either. And that, that was a big leap to say, like, Brad, you're just not... You are doing well. Congratulations. But please, you could be, you should be improving faster than you are. You, sh- you should be better than you are. So, Brad, do you think, as much as we love NSA, is there some negative peer pressure or unproductive peer pressure to do certain things a certain way? Uh, yep. <laughs> I have a dumb question, right? It's like, yeah. Well, it's two things. There are occasions where we are pressured by our peers. Like, I got the answer. You need to do this. You really need to do this. My space, it's going to be big. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, do it. Um, but also, it comes from us because we see other people who are doing well, people we respect, people we admire, and we see their business bottle and, we, and then we put it on ourselves. So it's not always external. But man, I would like to go and tell a younger version of myself. Do calm down. It's not always that way. So, for example, like we talked about officing, you don't have to have an office outside of your house. For example, yes, some people expand and have a scalable business, and that's fantastic. Some people have a practice, and that's fine. You can do that too. I, I man, I so much, so wish I could do that. How about this? You got to have a subscription series on your website. You've got to have. Uh, Fifteen years ago, is information marketing. What do, what information do you know that you're going to sell th- through the internet? Oh, dude, it's a waste of time. That's what I want to tell my younger self. I did this big product launch. I created an audio, a digital product that could be sold. I sold about twelve thousand bucks worth. It was minimum wage because I spent hundreds of hours. And what I'm telling myself now is what would have happened if I spent those same hundred hours crafting my open or crafting that one three-minute bit in the middle? Much less the entire keynote, probably with 100 hours, I might have got some stuff done. That would have been a much bigger return on my investment, for a, not just for months, but for a career, and I missed it. So all that pressure to do other things occasionally can lead to growth. But man, I would love to tell myself, no, you're fine. You're doing okay. In my case, I'm a keynote speaker. Brad, go speak. Get better at speaking. That's your job. Everything else is a distraction. So what I'm picking up there is know the game you're playing. Know the game you're playing. Wow, you said that better than I did. Yeah, I'm with you. That sounds great, yeah. This is the National Speakers Association. We sometimes see pressure to do things that aren't speaking. Great, build this business that trains uh, hundreds of people. Build this business that does amazing things. Scale this thing so that you can s- uh, sell it when you, when you retire. I'm not against any of that thing, but I think sometimes people like me who are, are speakers, I get paid when I speak and I don't get paid when I don't speak. That should be legitimate. And, um, and I, I believe it is now, but man, I would like to hear that from of an older self a long time ago. It's so funny to hear you say this because, you know, the hallway, again, the hallway buzz, the hallway buzz, the kind of friend-to-friend conversation, things on Facebook, etc. People say, man, NSA, man, it's all about the keynoters. You know, I'm not a keynoter and I, I feel less than. So everyone has this yeah. comparison syndrome, right? Grass is greener, like, baby. I'm not a keynoter. I'm not, man, I you know, maybe I don't belong in NSA if I'm not a pure keynoter. But then here's you, right, running a very successful pure keynote business 
business going, there's all this pressure. I should be consulting. <laughs> I should be coaching. I should have a staff. I should have a team. What the heck, man? I'm just yeah. a keynote speaker. What's wrong with my business model? Every keynoter I know thinks, I should be in training. And every trainer I know is like, I should be in keynoting. Maybe we're in the right place. So the grass is not always greener on the other side. The grass is always greener where you water it. Oh, oh, I'm going to cry. <laughs> that was so deep. I do what I can. <laughs> I think we stuck the landing. Right there, buddy. And now, your NSA national president and mine, and overall good guy, Brian Walter, CSP, CPAE. Hi, Brian Walter here, and it's not just time, but our last time together to explore how we can all apply what has been the official non-theme presidential concept acronym inspired by the iconic cape from the Spice Girls, WSLTC. Uh, that's the acronym, not the Spice Girls song. It stands for Wislitzy, Want Something, Leverage the Community. Now, by now, you know that I have shared throughout the year in VOE from across the country, from NSA and from Global Speakers Federation countries from all over the world, that the source of member value is want something. Murky wanting creates murky value. But once you identify an actionable want, you have the opportunity to leverage your speaker community. And that will almost always make your want a reality. Or at least closer to reality. Or at least, well, you really went for it and missed boldly. And you can re-leverage a different part of the community and try again. Yeah, that's the power of Wislitzy. If you want more member value, find out what you want. But leverage the community can also have a powerful twist. And that is where you create a customer community of your own that you leverage. A great example of this comes from keynote speaker and personal branding expert, Sylvie DeGiusto, CSP. Years ago, when she was writing her first book, The Image of Leadership, Sylvie didn't quite yet have a thriving community to tap into. So she created and leveraged one. And she started with Twitter. She reached out to her small, at the time, Twitter audience by asking questions that were relevant for her book. They competed to source 140 character quotes that could be featured in each chapter. They had to respond with their questions using the hashtag, the image of leadership. And almost instantly, hundreds of people started participating and submitting their quotes. In the end, Sylvie chose a few dozen of the best, which fit great with her book. And those that made the cut were pretty pumped. But that was crowdsourcing, not yet a community. So Sylvie went to work. She created a wall of fame on the book website, theimageofleadership.com backslash wall of fame. She lauded and featured each of them continuously on her social media and then highlighted them further in the mobile app that came with the book. But then she pivoted and went all old school and listed and thanked them in the book and mailed them copies with a handwritten thank you note. And yes, she made it a big deal. And this big deal became an autonomous, growing community. They were flattered to be part of the book and promoted it, and therefore themselves, like crazy. Their work colleagues, friends, families, neighbors, relatives, distant relatives, soccer moms and dads, and every social media friend and contact just had to know that they were a big deal since they appeared in Sylvie's Big Deal book. 
Their connections became Sylvie's connections. She quickly hit the 50,000 follower mark, which at the time back then was also a big deal. This community became the first ones to order, the first to write testimonials on Amazon, and the first to make her book launch really launch. And most are still connected years later with Sylvie today. Sylvie self was seed. She wanted something, created and leveraged the community. Be like Sylvie and then be the leverage for someone else's community. That's how we live the spirit of Cabot and build a bigger pie. Although technically you bake a bigger pie, but let's not quibble. Wislitzy. Where's all the good stuff happening? Of course, it's in the hallways, lobbies, and bars. All right. Are we in the hallway, the lobby, the bar? I don't know. We're in the, like, the food area. And I'm here with Liz Weber, CMC, CSP. What are you seeing that's kind of new and interesting trend kind of among our, our speaker expert community? Well, David, you know, it's really, it's been really fascinating because there, there's so many new technologies coming out, which, which never slows down. But what keeps resonating with me is, I'm just going to say, everything old is new again. And it's, the technology is phenomenal, and it's, it's an eye-opening, but everything is, is honing in on, you've got to be so tightly connected to your customer, your target customer, and really understand who he or she is. You know, what do they want? What's their next pain point? What are they worried about right now? What are they worried about six months from now, two years from now, five years from now? And, and really know them and have a relationship with them, whether it's personal or a digital relationship because to, to really have an impact on them, for them to really trust you to give you their dollars, you've got to know what matters to them. And and that is evergreen. It doesn't change. But all these different tools that we're seeing are just phenomenal ways to service them or know them a little bit better. To wrap up, it's time for VOD. Voice of David. That's me sharing my thoughts to help you grow your business, market smarter, and speak more profitably. Booga, 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 booga. <laughs> All right, now listen, this is serious. Here we are at the end of a long and winding road. What a year of voices of experience. It has been my pleasure and privilege and honor to serve as your humble host for an amazing year of content, insights, recommendations, strategies, tactics, templates, ideas, everything that you need to build your business, grow your platform as an expert who speaks professionally, make more money, and have more fun in this crazy world that we call the speaking, coaching, consulting, training industry. I hope that you re-listen and re-enjoy all of the brilliant experts, all of the fantastic speakers, consultants, and true innovators in this business of entrepreneurial expertise that we've had the privilege of talking to this year on Voices of Experience. You know, who knows? I'm not going to say farewell. I'm going to say au revoir. First of all, because it's French. And second of all, because you never know, I may be back. Next year's host, Chuck Gallagher, he might need a hand. He might want a little bit of a seasoned hand on the wheel just to get him acclimated. You never know. 
So, stay tuned. It's going to be an awesome year of VOE programming with your new host, Chuck Gallagher. Tune in next month. For now, it's David Newman signing off. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.